We are rolling. Ms. Cobb, could you tell us why you were in Iran? Um, I was in Iran as the director of the Anjuman Rano America, which is the um, Iran America Cultural Center. Uh, it was a uh, center that um, had an English language program. Uh, it also, at, uh, before I was there, had had a Farsi language program for expatriates living in Iran who wanted to become more fluent or learn basic Farsi. We had a resource library of about 10,000 volumes. We also had the offices of the Fulbright Commission in our complex. And um, we did all sorts of things in the area of educational and cultural exchange. You had quite a career in the Foreign Service before you went to Iran. Were you excited about this assignment? Um, as a matter of fact, I was. For one thing, it, the revolution in Iran had been virtually bloodless. And we had, at that time, seen so many really awful, bloody revolutions in Central America. And it would be fascinating to see how a country was going to develop a new form of government, this Islamic Republic, which was the goal of uh, the political people at that time. And I thought it might be fascinating to see that. Also, the ancient Persian culture is one of the great cultures of the world. And I knew people who had lived and worked in Iran, and they had a fabulous um, time there in terms of culture. And the Iranian people, by and large, are, are just generous and welcoming and warm and intellectually curious and, and fascinating. So I thought it'd be a great, um, a great to, um, move. You got more than you bargained for, but it was, <laughs> it was a great move. Uh, what was your sense of what Iran was like in the last days of the Shah? Well, I was actually in Washington at that time okay. uh, learning Farsi, and we were aware that things were not going well and that there was a great deal of unrest. The Shah was, even though he was one of our great friends, and of course this is one of the strange things, the uh, students who were our captors really thought that we were trying to replace the Shah um, and get him back on the throne as we had done uh, back in 1953 with the overthrow of Mossadegh. And they don't, uh, couldn't really understand our business, um, which, borrow an English phrase, the, the king is dead, long live the king. Mm. And when I asked about our election during our captivity, they said, well, how did you know there was an election? And I said, well, um, you know, every four years we have a revolution, only we call it an election. And that was very difficult for them to understand that you could still have friends, but you could accept the fact that they were no longer in power and that someone else had come and that you could deal in a straightforward fashion um, with um, a, a newly elected government. And, of course, it was an elected government. Um, so it, there, there were lots of things that don't mess mesh. And that's one of the things that intercultural communication is, is so important about and to be able to, to listen and to understand things. So it, it, it was a strange, um, uh, a, a strange understanding on both sides because a, we did our share yeah. of misinterpreting too. I have, yeah, I have a two-part question now. You made a point in your book, Guest of the Revolution, that, uh, or in some interview that I read with you, that you felt that uh, a great segment of Iranian society never forgave the Americans for restoring the Shah back in 1953, that that bred a lot of distrust. Did you also find Iranians willing to learn, willing to sort of approach Americans as potential friends? 
Oh, absolutely, because so many um, Iranians had uh, personal friends. And over and over, even to us, the kids would say, oh, we're not angry with you. Uh, we're not angry with the American people. We love Americans. It's your government we're um, angry with. Uh, there was a movie and a book uh, about 15 years ago that, that created a lot of controversy uh, called uh, Not Without My Daughter. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, I am. Uh, that really, I mean, the film at least, really painted a picture of, of a savage society. Now, I, I, this was Hollywood. I don't really know what happened. I did read the book, and the book is pretty unforgiving as well. Uh, did you see or read the book, and did you have any thought about that kind of depiction? Um, yes, I read the book and um, I saw the film. And just as in the United States, we have all kinds of people. So in Iran, there are all kinds of people. There are people in Iran who act like this, but it's not necessarily the majority. And there is um, a sort of a basic tenet there that children belong to the father. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a lot of truth in that book. And what happened, and, and I've read enough other literature from the Middle East. Um, for instance, I re re recently read a book by a sister-in-law of Osama bin Laden. Yeah. <clears throat> she was Iranian, as a matter of fact. She met her husband uh, when they were both at school in Switzerland. And when she discovered how the family was going to raise her daughters, she also... <clears throat> basically fled with her daughters. And um, so it's not something that, it's not uncommon, but there, for every one of those, there are also the absolutely um, charming, um, uh, cultured uh, people who care about family. I also had a very dear friend who was married to an Iranian man, and this was in the, um, oh, was it in the uh, late 50s, early 60s? And his family basically drove her out. So, yeah. it, you know, it, it depends on the family. It depends on the situation. It, it, it depends on so many things. Let's talk a bit when the students took over, when you were detained with 60-plus uh, other people. How much of the time of all those months that you were in captivity with all of the hostages, how much of that time did you know fear? Well, you were afraid every day. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons was that there was sort of no central command. I mean— this is not the way you treat people who were there on diplomatic missions. Of course, they voided all of that by saying, oh, you're all spies. Um, and I would laugh and say, impossible. Uh, I'm colorblind, and I'd pick up the wrong briefcase, you know. <laughs> and um, we have a little chuckle over that. But um, the fear was of the unknown. The fear was that somebody would flip out and do something uh, drastic, either on the Iranian side, or maybe uh, the frustration on the American side would get so great. And so, so it was that kind of fear. It would have been very foolish not to have been afraid. For me personally, there was never a time when somebody either stuck a gun at my head or pulled a knife on me, and I thought, oh, this is it, you know, there was this fear of dying. But there was fear that things could go wrong. So there was not one person in charge, not one authority figure, except the Ayatollah, I mean, who was in the building or around? Well, one of the tenets of Islam and of a good um, Muslim community is that things are done by consensus. Oh. So while there were leaders, I'm sure, and I know sometimes the young women who are our guards would say, well, we have to go to the meeting. And so there may have been 
a small cadre of people who were really running things. But uh, theoretically, at least uh, a great deal of it was done by consensus, because that's the Islamic way of doing things. One of the impressions I had from your book was that the, your captives were kids. Well, they were university students. Yeah, they, were, they were young yeah. kids. I mean, they were 20-somethings. Is that... Yeah. yeah. The, and don't forget, um, I basically only knew the women. Um, yeah. Uh, I met a few of the men. The men would not approach you because you were a woman. Is that right? They wouldn't... That was against their religious law? Um, it, they did what was expedient, but right. basically that's correct. Um, my roommate, Anne, was told, well, of course, we would never touch you because that's against our religion, but we know people who would. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, and they, you're absolutely right. They would not be in the same room with us, but that was kind of fun because I turned that around. <laughs> one of the... Um, one of the guys said he was going to be at my uh, the physical at the end of the captivity when the um, um, uh, Algerian doctors were examining us, and I looked at him and I said, "No, you will not." I said, "It's your religion and your rules. You can send as many of the sisters in to be there at the examination as you want, but you will not be there when the doctor examines me." And he backed off. Do you think some of these younger men were intimidated by you? That's an interesting question, but, but well, given this was they, an older they, had, man. they had guns and you didn't, but do you think the fact that you were a woman and, you know, you, you know I read your book, I don't know you, I'm speaking to you now, but it, it strikes me that you're not someone people push around, well, <laughs> really. I mean, even, even armed students. Hey, what can I tell you? I'm <laughs> yeah. the oldest of six girls yeah. and a former teacher. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> people tell me they don't stand a chance. Um, <laughs> no, they had the guns and they were very secure in their role as um, uh, as men and as in their in their position. The um, uh, this particular incident and was one where I knew that I could use this argument. Mm -hmm. And it was also, um, I also tried to pick my arguments. I also tried to, to choose um, what I was going to take a stand on. Your book is very clear about your very strong religious faith, uh, which clearly sustained you through those 444 days. And I know you come from a religious family. Could you explain that kind of faith to someone who doesn't share it? Well, I think I've spent the last 25 years, um, or 26 or 27, however long it's been, trying to do that. Sorry. <laughs> and it's, what I have learned is, I think maybe what I said in the introduction, that it gave me something to depend on. And there were some days when you just sort of grab hold of the coattails, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, and hang on. Yeah. But because I had been given this faith from the, uh, or the, uh, from the time I was a child, as I was instructed, I used the things, and, you know, at one point I said, things, bad things really hadn't happened to our family. And I thought, that's silly, because my grandfather died at a very young age. Um, my mother had uh, problems with her in her family relationships, um, and both of my parents. But I always saw an example of this happened, but now how are we going to deal with it? And part of that springs out of that faith. And one of the ways you do is um, you hang on to the promises that you're told mm -hmm. that have 
um, been given to you as a child of God, um, and you hang on to those promises. And how does it work? All I can say is I know it does work. It worked for me. Uh, one of the parts, when I was rereading your book last week, um, I threw it up against the wall. I got mad because you wrote about something. You wrote about a clergy person um, being allowed in to see you, a very rare occurrence, and he didn't bring the sacraments. Right. And I wanted to slap the guy. I'm sure you did, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that also, again, you go into cultural understanding. And this was um, someone from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how Eastern Orthodox Church handles um, communion. Okay. And so it may have been a cultural thing. And I did ask, um, and it sort of uh, took him back. But for those of us who are raised in, um, as I am sort of a, a Lutheran Christian, and for a lot of other mainline Christians, uh, the Eucharist is, is such a regular part of our worship service um, and so I did ask the question, but I'll have to check that out. It, you, you raised an interesting question. I'm wondering if it was cultural rather than, um, or, you know, than anything else. I'm Boston Irish. I would have decked him, just so you know. Well, <laughs> let me I, tell you. Um, I think I wrote about it yeah. in the book, perhaps. You um, were very disappointed. I mean, you were shocked. I mean, it, it came across you were quite surprised. Yeah, I, I was. But then a month or so later... I had this experience of what um, I didn't know at the time, but one of the Catholic groups that were praying for me, the Franciscan Sisters from New York, Mm -hmm. sent me a letter, and I had experienced what is called um, spiritual communion. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, and maybe if he had brought communion, I would never have had that experience. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. I also know that what I didn't know about you, what I learned was that you studied at the HP Studios in New York, and you studied acting and drama, and you have a strong theater background. Uh, did that training stand you in good stead during this? Oh, yes. I was going to say, really, <laughs> to being an actress? <laughs> One time they came in to the room and they said, do you have any, I've forgotten, I think it was toothpaste, and I looked the guy square in the eye and said, no, and we left, and Anne said, how could you do that? And I said, did you want to give up the toothpaste? And she said, no. No. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and um, so you learn, well, and actually, um, at one point, you know, when I looked at the guy and said, the Shaw is dead, when did he die? And he said, how do you know? And I said, you just told me. I mean, you know, that's an yeah. old theater trick. Um, and so, but yes, I use those things, but... Um, uh, only, you know, as as you use them in, in everyday life, I guess. Did you ever, it, it strikes me from the book, you, you never fell into the Stockholm Syndrome. No. And actually, um, I think if you read Mark Bowden's book, Guests of the Ayatollah, which sort of writes about all of us. That's the newer book, right. I, I will read that, yes. Um, that you find that uh, virtually none of us fell into that. And there were several reasons for that. Number one, um, we all knew why we were uh, why we were there. We knew what the situation was, and the charges, for instance, of our being spies uh, for most of us were so ridiculous. Um, and uh, we didn't need Stockholm syndrome because we were there because we believed that the country had a right to develop, and we really saw 
they're holding us as an impediment to the development of the Islamic Republic. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't understand how we could have that kind of an attitude toward their country, because the Shah was our friend, and therefore we had to do what we should do to, you know, put him back in power. Again, back to this old thing of reading another culture by your own culture. Uh, the other thing is that it, you you didn't know how many people were being held with you and who they were. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, for all you knew, it could have been five, ten people. It could have been just the two of you, you and Miss Swift. I mean, uh, it, so one gets the impression that you will, all 66 of you were, were friends before this happened, but you never even met most of them. Is that right? <laughs> well, I suspect we had met because we had a couple of social occasions when most of us were there and some softball games, you know, embassy softball games and, and things like that. Um, and certainly I knew all of the women who were there. And I knew an awful lot of the officers because when you work in an embassy community, um, and I had been there uh, oh, two and a half months of, uh, no, wait a minute, three and a half months, I think. Yeah, not long. You were new not in long. town. But, yeah. but when you have a job to do at the embassy, you walk into the embassy and you immediately know who the players are because you have to become part of the country team. So there were people that I didn't know as well as others, and I you know, had met them in the corridor, probably would have said, who's that? But... Um, and Anne and I tried to figure out who was there and who we had seen at different places or who we had run into or whatever. So we knew that there was a larger group, but we didn't know exactly who and we didn't and know all of the names. You're absolutely correct in that. Are you in touch with any of the people today? Um, we are in touch. Um, basically, I usually hear from... Um, uh, Bruce Langen, whenever I'm in Washington, of course, Anne was my uh, the other person that I stayed in touch with until her death. And um, if I need to be in touch with any of them, yeah. I can manage it. What is your life today? What is my life today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 I mean one of the things said that, that the people don't ask me about anything except my captivity, and here I am. I mean, it was a, it was a, a big, horrible deal. But what else is your life today? I know you're teaching and you're doing church work, but what, you know, how has this pervaded your life or has it? Okay, yeah, I was just asked that question um, uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, it's less than one sixtieth of my life okay, at this right, point. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting to be an old lady, which is lovely. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I flunked retirement, oh. so I work as an adjunct, um, adjunct professor at Wartburg, and I get to teach fascinating courses like reconciliation, images of God in Bible and culture, some basic public speaking courses. And um, in May term, I'm going to be teaching a course called Intercultural Communication, and I'll have a chance to teach that course again um, next winter. And that's where we actually take a look at how do we try and open ourselves to become receptive and understanding about people of other cultures. I love to travel, and I've done some absolutely amazing trips. Um, this past year, I went to see the Total Eclipse, in uh, Libya, wow. um, with um, you know five thousand of, of my nearest and dearest friends <laughs> who were all out there in the middle of the desert looking at the total eclipse of the sun, I have um, uh, I took a cruise around the world, which was something I had always wanted to do. So travel is a big part of my life. I still have an insatiable curiosity about uh, what makes um, the world tick and where people live and and to see them in uh, their homes. Um, I 
keep developing new friendships. Most recently, I had a chance to um, uh, get to know um, a, a charming Iranian-American uh, woman uh, who wrote a, a fascinating book that you might want to check out. It's called Funny and Farsi. Oh, and, okay. Uh, it's Firuze, um, Firuze Duma, D-U-M-A-S, and she is... Um, uh, she was. Uh, her father was an engineer who worked in the states, and in her book, she talks about the difference before uh, the hostage takeover and after, and what it was like to grow up as as um, an Iranian child in America. She's married and has children now, and she does a lot of speaking in California about just this thing that we were talking about with not without my daughter mm-hmm. about that there are all kinds of Iranians and and in this uh, and it's she I think she'd make a good interview for you terrific um, I will check her out sure so um, there you know life is good life is full I'm the chair of the Wartburg Community Symphony Board this year um, do some work with um, the synod in terms of um, sister synod relationships with Lutheran churches in Namibia. I'm also um, oh, on the local airport commission, much to my surprise. <laughs> uh, so uh, there are all kinds of things, and I enjoy very much being close to um, all of my sisters. Uh, we're all within 40 miles of each other, so that's great. And one last question. Here's an easy one. What's the obstacle to peace in the Middle East? <laughs> <laughs> Openness, really? dialogue, okay. I, uh, a willingness to accept the fact that things are done differently in different countries. I, the idea of we're not speaking to them doesn't accomplish anything, I don't think. Um, I know Iran needed, needed the money, and that was probably one of the basic reasons why we were released when we were, but it wouldn't have happened without dialogue. And I think of what we didn't learn when we didn't speak to the Chinese for all of those years Mm -hmm. until President Nixon, whatever else he was, he had the courage to open a dialogue with China, and it started with ping-pong. It started with ping-pong. It starts with understanding that um, there are different kinds of rice. It starts with understanding that just because this lifestyle is good for me, it's not necessarily good for you, that there's nothing wrong with being different. Different is just that. It's different. It's not better. It's not worse. And until we're willing to accept some pretty basic um, stuff like that, I'm afraid we're going to just be wrong-headed for a long, long time. Boy, this has been great. Do you have any last thoughts? I think I've kept you long enough, but I, I mean, I could be here all day. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to see how you edit this yes. down <laughs> and, and what you do with it. No, um, people ask me, uh, one of the questions I get asked most frequently, and it led to the teaching and reconciliation and in the images of God, did you really learn to love your enemies? And uh, my answer to that is also an answer to how do you tell, talk to people about your faith. I know that I can't do it. It's the grace of God. And uh, so if there's anything, if anybody wants to know about God's grace, um, Nelson Mandela, mm. uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and maybe and a little footnote down there somewhere, Kate Cobe, um, knowing that that somehow... Um, if you're willing to open yourself, 
God's grace will provide the way for an awful lot of stuff. Okay, but my mother would have thrown her rosary beads at that guy with no sacraments, just so you know. I mean, she would have. That would have been the end of him. <laughs> well, actually, what was really funny was I was so upset that I did start to cry. And, of course, that's what the television cameras captured. Right. And everybody thought, oh, she's having a breakdown. I said, no. I'm just <laughs> P.O., man. Was, <laughs> I, was, I was disappointed. So <laughs> I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, you're so much. welcome. This was a good interview. Well, thank, thank you. you for doing your homework. Thank you. My pleasure. I write another book. I look forward to it. Okay. Okay, thanks again. Sure enough. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.